Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Eric. My name is Eric Y, and I'm a compulsive overeater. For those of you, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody that comes here talks about how intimidating it is to be here. It's always a very nerve-wracking thing. Uh, to try and help myself get prepared, I've been praying all day, but, but I was... I, uh, somebody in program taught me to occasionally write down good things that people say, and uh, I was looking through my list today, and there happens to be the person in the room that I think once said this, who said, a normal person has 40,000 thoughts a day, an addict has five thoughts they think about 40,000 times. <laughs> and so that is my life. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I hope today, because of the format of this meeting, I want to talk about what it was like and what happened and what I'm like now. But I would like to just, before I begin, kind of talk about um, miracles that have happened to me in this program. And I don't know why I'm getting choked up, but hopefully we can laugh. I'm mostly getting choked up because I was thinking, uh, at the risk of revealing what I do, uh, uh, I have a student that I have worked with ever since she was in preschool. And this year she's about to graduate high school. And I work with students uh, who need help with technology, and that's what I do. And so anyways, for a year with the mom and I, we've been planning to, uh, just before she graduates, because she's going to have to return equipment to us, to go help her buy this laptop. So anyways, last night we're in the Apple store, one of easily a hundred customers, and had a really nice guy helping us. And he keeps wondering why the hell am I crying and cheering and choked up, you know, and, and, and I'm saying, I'm stupid, this student is really preschool, you know, and, and so anyways, uh, it's a miracle of my program and my recovery that I not only was able to do that, I mean, the person I was before, I would have just obsessed about, you know, the money I would have paid for that generosity, so I would have been generous, but then resentful afterwards, and instead, I was so genuinely happy that I couldn't stop crying, because this person is such a, uh, has grown into such a fabulous woman. Um, so, uh, again, my name is Eric Wyan, I'm a compulsive overeater, and, uh, uh I always love to come to meetings, and I, uh, like so many people, have listened to this podcast from this meeting so often. Uh, and so let me talk a little bit about what it was like. So uh, uh, some of you know me. I came into the program for the first time in 1992 uh, at the Monday Miracle Meeting in Encino. Uh, and I have been in the program since 1992. Uh, I have been abstinent a number of times. I'm currently abstinent since... Uh, uh, October 12th of 2011, uh, six years of abstinence, maintaining about a 50 to 60 pound weight loss. So uh, I'm one of those people that became a compulsive overeater at an early age. Uh, uh, there is addiction on both sides of my family, and I think when you're a seven-year-old and you're trying to look for something, it's very hard to get into liquor, smokes, tattoos, or, you know, uh, or, or illicit drugs. And food was an answer. Uh, 
it's interesting to think that, you know, about the way times have changed, uh, that, you know, in those days I was what was known as a latchkey child. I don't even know if latchkey children can exist anymore. I think that they, they call children services of such. But I used to uh, come home and from uh, about 3.30 until about 5.30 or 6, I was alone in the house. So probably the only seven-year-old who was a, an avid watcher of Mike Douglas. Uh, <laughs> and... I discovered uh, cinnamon toast at a very young age. Uh, I also can recall. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't mean to, to trigger anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I told someone I was so nervous before I spoke, I was afraid I would throw up and then afraid I would trigger someone in the room. So, uh, you know, I, and we need to laugh about these stuff. I, I often laugh that, you know, for me, as a child, Halloween was the high holiday of the year. I may have been the only child on, in the United States who was still trick-or-treating at like 10.30 at night, you know. God damn it, give me some candy. But anyhow, uh, so I struggled with this disease. You know, uh, one thing I think I discovered early that really helped me in my disease was isolation. You know, I do think that, uh, as so many of us know, this, this disease really begins with isolation, and, and it's exacerbated by isolation. One of the great miracles I feel in this program today is the connection I have with people in this program. Um, a sense of obligation. You know, the mere fact that I actually showed up to speak tonight is a damn miracle in my life because amongst those five thoughts I thought 40,000 times today was at least three of them, how could I organize my day so I could call and say I couldn't be here tonight? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? My recovery is today I try to listen with my ears and try not to listen between my ears. Okay? And so... Uh, the problem is, as I said, when I was seven or eight, I began to become a compulsive overeater. And it continued through most of my childhood. Um, it went into remission when I was about 11 or 12, but mostly because I got a job and started delivering papers and I had to get a little exercise, and that certainly helped me. Uh, too bad I didn't discover exercise bulimia. But nonetheless, uh, I did deliver papers, and, and I had some remission in my disease. Um, it has haunted me most of my life. Uh, uh, I got married at a young age, and I married an alcoholic. And uh, for a few years, again, my disease went in remission while I drank with my, my ex-wife. And then uh, my disease hit, hit again. And, you know, this disease is so scary and insidious. And, and uh, uh, just something to share from my marriage. You know, my wife was a pretty good cook, and she would make these desserts, and then I would just eat them entirely. You know, because I'm a compulsive overeater. I just can't stop. And I can't stop thinking about getting back to the food. And it became so bad in the later years in our marriage that she would bake these things and then quite literally take a knife and draw it down the middle. You know. And somehow or another, I was able to respect that boundary, but uh, I would eat, you know, my share in that one sitting and then beg for parts of her share, you know, uh, <laughs> as the days went on. And, you know, and so that's how this disease works for us. Uh, as I said, I'm, I, I, I like to isolate, and this disease was very helpful and, and fun to have in isolation, and it haunted me. Uh, <clears throat> I'm convinced that my marriage... Uh, uh, ended mostly because of my disease. Uh, she wanted to be a better alcoholic, and I wanted to be a better compulsive overeater. And it was hard to do that while being married. Uh, I got my first recovery in this program uh, when I came in the program in around 1992. Uh, and as I say, that's when my marriage ended. And uh, 
this program really helped me tremendously. I got abstinent. I got involved in the program. I had a phenomenal sponsor, this woman that was uh, from New Jersey, and she would talk with that New Jersey accent. And, you know, whenever she said, you know, stop doing that, you know, uh, it, it just resonated with me, and I stayed abstinent. But a major theme of myself in program is my penchant to be dishonest with myself. And so... Uh, uh, when I got abstinent the first time, uh, amongst the things that I think really served to destroy my abstinence the most was to, you know, have taken the commitment of secretary for one meeting, uh, maybe been a delegate at one meeting, been literature at one meeting, and then having done three commitments, I retired from the commitment business in this program and became, you know, just somebody who would sit and watch. And uh, that allowed me to drift a little bit further away. Another problem that I've wrestled with is dishonesty, and those who have heard me speak before know that to me the worst dishonesty that I'm guilty of is the dishonesty to myself. Because once I begin lying to me, you, you know, are, are not an issue for me at all. Uh, and, and that's what has troubled me with my attempts to recovery in the past, is I have a, uh, always had a penchant to like to be dishonest with myself. You know, uh, when I first came into the program the first time, I think my top weight was about 240, 245, and I got the weight down. And it's interesting in the dishonesty, uh, I've heard that term before, that, that I always marvel at the fact that I went from about 245 to about 185 pounds, and I never saw that weight come off my body. Isn't that interesting? That the whole time, I saw myself as a 245-pound person all the way down to 180. Now, conversely, in the times I've lost my abstinence, I've seen myself as a 180-pound person all the way up to 245, you know. Uh, I'm the guy that thinks, you know, vertical stripes will solve all the ills, you know. <laughs> Lean forward, let the shirt hang, and no one, you know, will see. So, so uh, anyways, uh, my first abstinence ended by beginning to become dishonest with myself. Then I got dishonest with my sponsor, and then I slowly drifted away from program. And that's how it usually ends. Uh, you know, I don't know of anyone in my time that has ever broken an abstinent in some grandiose, you know, giant way. It usually starts easy, easy and simple, and then we drift off. And so that's what happened to me. Um, and I left the program, and I went back into my disease. And then I also suffered from something I, uh, that I like to highlight in uh, 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 the... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm... I'm Traditions. Sorry, I'm losing my word thing. You know, I have lost my ability to say people's names and so and everything. But you know, uh, I like to point out, you know, that one of the most important traditions to me is that my the only thing I need to be a member here is a desire to stop you know, eating compulsively. And the problem that I wrestled with as I left the program and came back and became someone who retreads is I began to feel I no longer deserve to have a place in this room. Uh, and so what? happened after I first left program was a good six or ten years of re-entering program at ever further geographical areas in the state of California. You know, uh, I uh, normally go to meetings in the Valley. I returned to uh, a different OA program on the west side. And then when I failed at that program, I went to meetings at the Fithill Intergroup. You know, uh, had I continued to retread, I'd probably be meeting in Irvine even as we speak. So, you know, and, and uh, I did eventually come back one more time, and I had a really nice man as my sponsor, and he really helped me, again, in my recovery. 
But the problem is this darn issue with lying to myself and then lying to you. And I can remember that he was my sponsor. And as the year anniversary of my abstinence came up, he goes, aren't you about to celebrate a year? And I was like, well, I think I drifted out of my abstinence about four months ago. But, you know, in my course of lying, he never knew and I never told him, you know. Uh, and so, you know, as I say, that's that has been the thing I wrestled with. Um, that last time I left the program, I, I, I left because, uh, frankly, uh, of a statement in Chapter 5 uh, about how it works and about the fact that uh, as long as we're willing to get honest, there's recovery to be had here. But there are those people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And that's what really shattered me one day when I realized just the very problem I'm mentioning to you. Even though compulsive overeating is the way that I demonstrate my disease, my disease is really about the dishonesty I have against myself. And food is just the vehicle I use to get away from that dishonesty for a brief amount of time. Uh, in an act, in and of itself, that is wholly dishonest. So I don't know how that works, but somehow or another, you know, uh, when I'm in the food, I'm out of my own dishonesty. So I left the program at that time. I'm convinced that I absolutely had no right to ever come in these rooms and that there was no chance for me to ever have recovery. And so uh, I drifted like that for about four or five years. I reached the top weight of probably around 255, maybe 260. Uh, and all the while, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that, you know, kind of fat recovery where I pretended everything was all right. And yet my evenings were spent thinking about food, going in to, to purchase food, acquiring it. You know, uh, the triple taco, the triple Taco Bell run, you know, each one is a single item, you know, with blankets to cover up the two that you've got at the last, you know, I mean, this disease is just horrible and it never gets better. It always gets worse. And so I drifted like that for many years. Uh, now, <clears throat> again, those of you who, who know my story, uh, this is a point where I really have to bring out the fact that uh, I had a sister that I was extremely close to. As I mentioned, I was a latchkey child. Uh, my mom really liked to work. And uh, uh, I can still remember that when I came home from kindergarten, uh, we immediately got in the car so she could go see where she was going to work. You know, she was a teacher, and, and, and she got a job the next year. And when my sister came into our family when I was 10, uh, she only took one year off, and then I became the person responsible for, you know, getting her up in the morning, changing her, taking her to the theater. Then I was the one who had to be home at four to pick her up and bring her in. And I got very close to my sister. Uh, in some respects, you know, I felt like a father, but at 10 years old, there's no one who should have to or needs to be a father figure to a child. But we were very close. And what's sad to me is in the last years of her life, you know, I was struggling with my disease. And she, too, struggled in her own life, and it pained my sister to watch me in my disease. And, and it's sad that, I, you know, that that's my memory uh, of her. Uh, she worked in New York for many years and was successful enough that she was able to take one year off and just spend the year visiting people. And she spent time visiting me, and we had a beautiful time together, and she spent time visiting other people. Uh, when she got ready to work, she settled in North Carolina, and then as some of you know, and I share it mostly so that you can see firsthand somebody who has seen this happen, uh, my sister was driving in her car one day and started to make a cell phone call and had a head-on collision and died. And what's always sad is that uh, the person on the other end of that line had to hear her die. And it was so 
shocking to that person that she couldn't even say it for a week before she called my mom and said, you know, I just got to admit this, this is horrible. And, and, you know, and so that happened. And that devastated me. That just absolutely devastated me, as anyone can imagine. And so uh, she died in November. Uh, and I immediately thought, you know, what can I do to help recover from this? You know, it's very horrible trying to get over someone that close. And my first thought was, I'll get clean, uh, I'll get off the food, I'll get out of the sugar, and I'll make my life right as a testimony to my sister. And that lasted for about 48 hours, and it was mid-November, and I thought, you know, that's a New Year's resolution, okay? So, you know, I'm going to do that New Year's. She would know that. She wouldn't want me to start, you know. You know. And I mean, that's just the hiddenness of the disease. And those who... Uh, uh, no, is January 1st came, and I was abstinent until at least 1 o'clock, and then they figured I'd start the next day, and then, you know, the same thing happened, and over and over, and it's just so embarrassing to think that if you can imagine just, this, you know, the suffering I had at losing someone so close to me, and the desire to make my life right, that daily commitment I failed almost 300 days in a row. And I made that commitment every night before I went to bed and before I put down the last bite of food. I said, well, tomorrow will be different. And every day it wasn't. And uh, as the anniversary of my sister's death came up, I mean, as I said, I was within about 60 days of it. Uh, I just didn't know quite what I would do. Uh, I was getting very crazy, you know, every day trying to get off the food and being unable to do it. And a series of events occurred where, such that uh, people were shooting a movie at the house next door to me for an entire week. And during that week, they were eating their lunch on my front yard and leaving trash, and they were doing this and that. And I was getting ever so slowly more upset and angry, and, you know, and I talked to them, and they wouldn't do anything. And on about the fourth day, I walked over there. And just started laying into the guy who was whatever the location manager. Just laying into him and I could not stop myself from just yelling at him. I was just as crazy as I could ever be. And it was just so awful and so crazy that I've never seen somebody stare at me trying to make an executive decision whether to call the police or the loony wagon. This guy couldn't figure out what to do. And when I finally caught myself, I told the guy, look, I'm going to go in my house and you're not going to see me the rest of the day. And I went into my house, and uh, as I said, I, my father was a rageaholic, so part of what I saw was my father's rage finally perking up. You know, food was not going to be all of the disease I was going to have, it's going to now introduce my father's rage. And I sat down on the sofa in my living room, uh, really just beside myself, and uh, uh, I thought of that line in the Shawshank Redemption that goes, you know, you have a choice in life to get started living or get started dying. And I just sat there thinking that without question, all I was doing was getting started dying. And the closest I've ever come to a spiritual experience, I sat there and I just prayed and I hoped and I desired that I might find some way I could get honest with myself. And uh, I had a moment there, followed by a call to my health care where I said, I'm going crazy. Isn't there a pill you can get me? You know, because uh, even, you know, in, in that moment, I thought that maybe a pill would fix me. And it wasn't. They said I'd have to wait two weeks to see a psychologist. And I was going crazy. And so uh, I thought that really my only hope was to try and return to this program. 
and try and see if I couldn't be here. Ignoring that line in the 12 traditions that said all I had to do was come here and say I wanted to stop compulsively overeating. So uh, some of you have heard of the 100-pounder meeting. I knew a guy that would be the perfect angry sponsor for me. And so uh, I went to that 100-pounder meeting hoping to see that guy and ask him to be my sponsor. Now, he happened to be there that night. I chickened out of asking him to be my sponsor because it didn't work out. But somebody pitched that night something that really resonated with me in the moment. And they said that if you've been in this room one day and a newcomer shows up, you're at least one day ahead of that person. There isn't a reason in the world why you can't turn around, shake their hand, and thank them for being here. And that really meant something to me. And it meant so much to me that for the next year, I changed my work schedule so that I could go to this meeting that started at 7.30 in the morning. And I would go to that meeting and I would stand in front of that door and I shook the hands of every person that came in before I went to work. And it really helped me. That connection really helped change me. But the greatest gift of all was then I went to an OA meeting and and part of this lunacy and craziness, uh, I had not shared at a meeting. I had been to about three at this moment and, you know, wondering... Uh, whether or not I would ever be okay. And I pitched at this meeting. And what I, while I don't remember what I said, it was so positively incoherent, stream of consciousness. You know, typical, we've all seen people come in this room when they're really in desperate need. And the thing that happened that still gets to me every time is after the meeting, a couple of guys came up to me and they said, we want you to go to this place and we want you to sit there and we're going to be there in a few minutes to help you. And by God, I went there, and I sat there, and shortly thereafter, they came, and they helped me. And they asked me to say, you know, talk about my story and what was going on. And I proceeded to Babylon a good 15 or 20 minutes, spilling out everything in my life that I had ever been dishonest about. And it was so loony and incoherent that to this day, those guys make fun of me uh, for being the crazy guy. But, you know... That's, that's just so powerful and magical to me, even to this day. Because I have a disease of isolation. And for you know, me to shake anybody's hand is, is the biggest miracle of all. I can pray to a higher power and I can work the steps. But I'm one of those people that just wants to sit down here, quietly attend the meeting, and then get the hell out. And for me to even talk to someone, you know, that's just who I am. Uh, and, and to have those guys, you know, be so interested in helping me and saving me uh, has struck me to this day. And so uh, that's what it was like, and that's what happened. And what it's like now is uh, opportunities like this uh, to kind of relive that experience, to remember what I went through. And uh, what I've learned from those guys is, one, you have to work the steps. You know, recovery comes uh, at the end of step nine, and you maintain recovery by working steps 10, 11, and 12. The other thing I've learned in this program is rituals are not that bad of a thing. Okay? Uh, people I've known in this program who seem to have ungodly long abstinence are people who seem to get up very early in the morning and write for 10 minutes and then pray and then read the big book and then meditate, you know, and they do it day in and day out. Uh, one of the things that I've wrestled with and continue to wrestle with, what's so nice at being a part of this fraternity that is the OA program, is making outreach calls. It's very hard for me to do, as I said. You know, I'm uh, by nature a shy person. 
And so, again, that's why this disease was probably the most perfect disease I could ever have, because all I want to do is isolate, you know. And so making outreach calls is hard, but I do that. And I do that because I need to share what's going on with me, and I need to be honest about it, and I need to feel that commitment. And so today, you know, I get up every morning, I read my big book, I write my letter to my sponsor, I commit my food. If my food changes, I share that change with my sponsor, uh, and I try to stay in contact with my higher power throughout the day. And I try to focus on the next thing I need to do. That's what's really helped me uh, the most in program, and that's about all I've got, so thank you for letting me share. Are there, so you said we need to take questions now? Is that right? Yes. Can you talk, thank you for yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you contact your higher power and how you work that other step? Sure, sure. Can uh, pardon? Can you yes, the question is how do I uh, maintain my contact with my higher power and how do I work step 11? Uh, <clears throat> as I said, I... I am one of those people that tries to keep a daily, you know, a constant dialogue with my higher power. And then there are specific moments when I pray. Every time I get a good parking spot, I go, thank you, God. You know, right? Uh, and I got a good one today, so I prayed outside before I came in. Uh, uh, and so that works. You know, uh, by example, as far as staying focused and connected with my higher power, uh, I was telling someone... I was supposed to speak at a meeting this morning up in Canyon Country, and as I was driving out to that meeting, all I saw was just traffic, just dead stop, going the other direction. And all I could think going to that meeting is, oh my God, it's going to take three, four times longer to get home. Now that's, you know, in my disease, that was surely set off a resentment. In my recovery, I was able to at least think, that's not, that thought's not going to help me. You know, let's get on to the meeting. You know, you don't know what it's going to be like when you get home. Now, sometimes my higher power helps me. It turns out they double booked a speaker. So I didn't have to speak, and I got to make my way back home, and I was okay. But, you know, but uh, as to how I work the 11th step, uh, I am a big fan of meditation. And uh, I've been very lucky. Uh, it's interesting that I, I've probably been uh, around meditation since I was about 15. I went and learned how to meditate uh, uh, when I was about 15 and was in and around it for many, many years. But I'm very fortunate that uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, I did find someone who was able to teach me a way to meditate that's really made, uh, resonated in my life and made a difference. And so uh, I do try to meditate every morning for a rather uh, ungodly length of time. But it does help me a lot. You know, one of the best things I, I get out of meditation is an opportunity to see myself, if you will, kind of see myself, but not have to be a part of myself. You know, uh, it's interesting. If you meditate long enough and you sit in an awkward position long enough, discomfort will arise. It's just natural and, and so forth. But if you're meditating well and you're concentrating appropriately, you have the opportunity to learn in your own mind how to coexist in that discomfort and yet not be impacted by it. And that's something in my disease, you know, if you think about it, what I've always thought is some irritation that would drive me to food so that I could get relief from the irritation. And then when I was done with the food, I would seek out the next irritation to come back. And so, you know, I mean, that's just the reality. And so the nicest thing I've gotten out of meditation, I feel, to the extent I've been open to learn from it, is over the years I am getting better and better at 
you know, sitting in the discomfort but not being impacted by it. Okay, I'm extremely nervous tonight, you know, and shaking and so forth and so on. And my my hands are as cold as ice, but I'm still speaking. So, you know, uh, I've managed to do that. So so meditation has been very helpful and I do it as often as I can. Yes. Oh, ten minutes. Okay. Yes. Thank you for your share. Can you talk a little bit about your food plan and how you, you got to it? Mm. Very good. That's an excellent question. Uh, my food pa- plan, <coughs> excuse me is that, uh, uh, boy, it's a long list. I don't know if I can quote the list without actually referring to my nightly email to my sponsor. But, but I am, at essence, uh, a sugar addict and, and a pretty serious one. Uh, and so with my sponsor, uh, we sat down. And it's interesting, as I mentioned, I have about six years of abstinence. But last year, just feeling that I needed to figure out some way to get reconnected, you know, my sponsor and I made a date and we just sat down and we just we spoke about my abstinence to see where it was. We commit to stuff. Uh, I am essentially a sugar addict. I do everything I can, strangely enough, to avoid, su- you know, avoid sugar in my life. Now, uh, uh it's, you know, almost impossible to do, but probably the biggest reason I started cooking for myself is because, uh, you know, so many things are packaged and made with sugar. Uh, does that mean that that I'm always 100% on that? Uh, uh, I like to think I am, but, you know, you never know what you're going to bite into, but by God, you know, there is... A, I don't know about other people, but if I have sugar, and especially really processed sugar... Uh, it will trigger that obsession, and I will go to town. And when they, you know, the big book talks about recoiling as if from a hot flame, I am so averse to that feeling, you know, that I just don't want it. And if I bite a piece of food and it does not taste right, I will not eat that food because, you know, it's, it's, it's going to make me have a horrible evening and everything else. You know, we all know what will happen. And so uh, that's what I do. So my food plan is essentially no sugar. Uh, I'm very careful about flour, um, and and that is essentially the essence beyond certain foods that you know are are what you all might know as red light foods. You know, in my own mind, I feel there's four kinds of food I can eat on any given day in two groups. There's foods I like, and there's foods I don't like, and there's foods I can't control, and there's foods I can't control. And believe it or not, there are foods I do not like, but I can't control. There are certain sugars that I would not choose to binge on, but if they were the only sugars I had, I would binge on them, you know. There are a very few foods that I like and can control, you know. Uh, mostly it's, you know, lettuce, and I can control lettuce, you know. I mean, uh, but, you know, but, but those are the foods. And so as those foods begin to appear, then I have to talk about it with my sponsor and, and deal with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And question? We're coming in, right? Here's one more. Thank you. Sure. Can you talk about your practice with step Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yes. Uh, so I'm being asked about what my process is with step practice. practice with step 10. So uh, uh, my sponsor has given me uh, uh, an email format every night, which is, in fact, the 10th step. And uh, what's great about it is uh, uh, I thought it was a horrible long series of questions, until in an effort to start strengthening my abstinence, you know, you hear people talk about uh, uh, reading page 86 to 88 in the big book every day. And so as I began to add that to my practice, I suddenly realized one morning as I was reading that, that, oh, my God, every question I'm being asked in my nightly 10-step email is coming right off of these two pages. 
and so I do do that every every evening. Uh, and I sit down, I try and think, you know, am I going to bed with a resentment? If it is, you know, have I talked to somebody about it? Uh, those things are very important to me. Uh, I think, you know, and I think it's a byproduct of the disease that, you know, uh, I tend to want to always feel I'm in homeostasis. You know, so sometimes it's very hard for me to identify resentments, you know. And so I rely upon my sponsor sometimes to see my nightly 10th step and email me back and say, hey, what the hell's going on here? What's going on there? Uh, and so that's kind of the process. Does that make sense? Yes? Any more? Okay, sure. Can you talk a little bit Yes. So talk a little bit about how program has impacted the relationships in my life. Yes, it's ended every one of them. So so, uh, it has, but it hasn't. So let me let me answer this. Uh, uh, One of the nicest things that the program has done for me is slowly develop and teach me ways on how to be honest with another person. Uh, you know, most of my relationships in my disease have been just littered with dishonesty and just, you know, everything that could be wrong in a relationship. And as I said, while I have struggled with relationships, the best thing program has taught me in recent years is how to be honest about it. Uh, uh, it's partially helped me how to communicate. Uh, and uh, I'm open, you know, to having good relationships. I will say it's really helped, you know, with people who are friends in my life this program has really changed me because I've learned a lot about the responsibility that I have to engage in to be a friend. Another interesting thing, and maybe I should close with this, uh, beyond friendships, I didn't talk at all about my family. You know, my family served as the primary resentment for my disease for many, many, many years. Every time I was in and went out, my family was was the, the, the people I resented and I had a lot of resentments against them. In this recovery and in this attempt to be honest with myself, one of the things that was shared with me by my sponsor and so forth was rather than, you know, and I visit my family several times and they live uh, uh, in an odd place in the, in the country. But when I visit them, my sponsor once said when I was sharing resentments and how I thought my brother was going to be mean this way and my mom was saying these bad things and this, my sponsor suggested, I, here's an idea. Rather than think about what they can do for you, why don't you just focus on being of service to them? And that ironically and magically transformed my relationship with my family. You know, I thought for sure my brother would hate me and never want to spend any time with me. I was shocked to discover as I got sober with food that my brother actually likes me and actually has been saddened and watched me all these years and only wanted the best for me. But nowadays, because when I go visit my family, my primary thought is what can I do to be of service to them I'm no longer caught up in the resentments. And so while I may struggle with the personal relationships, the great miracle in my life beyond knowing how to have some friendships is that my family likes me and I love my family. And that is probably the final greatest miracle I've got in program. And thank you all so much for letting me share.